Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Well, let me encourage you to open your Bibles this morning, and we're going to Nehemiah in the Old Testament, chapter 2. And in today's passage, we come across the title of this entire series, Let Us Rise Up and Build, is found in today's message. The providence of God, that's essential. It's often taken for granted and overlooked. The scriptures teach that God is provident and that God is sovereign. We looked at this a few weeks ago. In God's sovereignty, he's entirely free to do whatever he wants to do. God is able. So as we pray, we pray believing God is sovereign. He is able. And we also believe in the providence of God that he is good. And so he is working out even though we can't often see how is this going to work out for good, we can go to the scriptures and know and trust that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So then do we just sit back and say, well, then if God wants to reach the people in Southeast Michigan, let him do it himself. We've got a place here. It's paid for, been paid for a long time by those in previous generations who sacrificed, and we're fine. Let's coast, shall we? How about not? No. There's a human responsibility. And here in today's text, we see Nehemiah refuses to coast in. He refuses to run the race. Have you watched the runners? And they run, and they believe they have it all in the bag. The guy on the bike putting his hands up, looks this way, someone passes him, second place, buddy. Now, if I did that, my tire would go like this, and I would finish out of the complete, you just go sit over there with your ruined bike-wise, where you're all done. There's a human responsibility here, and it's God's plan for bringing the gospel to all peoples. And what is his plan A and only plan? The church. The church. So in Matthew 28, we're given this great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Have you been obedient to that? Maybe you're here and you've been saved, but you haven't been baptized yet. Talk to us. We want to help you take that next step. Verse 20, we go. What are we doing? What are we doing this morning for those who are here in Christ? Teaching them to observe. It's more than just obey, all right? Because you know the kid that is like, fine, I'll do it. That misses the heart attitude of, yes, Lord. This is going to cost me everything, but I'll do it, right? Observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, you can't do it alone. I am with you how often? Always, to the end of the age. And this is our mission. This is the Great Commission. And so we have broken this down as a church. You, you've seen this many times. We want to glorify God. That's our aim. 
How are we going to glorify God? To reach people for Jesus Christ, to connect them with other believers, to equip them to grow in their faith, and that ultimately ends up in them serving. What does that look like here at Grace? What is our discipleship pathway? Everybody here is under, under the sound of my voice and joining online. You are somewhere in this pathway. Go, baptize, teach. We take us to the, to the next slide. Is it there? Is it not there? There it is. Okay? This is the discipleship pathway. Have you been converted? If you've been converted and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, have you followed him and made your conversion public to everybody through the waters of baptism? Some will say, I've been converted, but I haven't yet been baptized. You can see where you are on this pathway. Once you've been saved, once you've been baptized, what's God's plan? There's a church where you will belong, join here at Grace. This is a local body of believers. And you will join and be plugged into a small group where you will walk and be discipled together with that small group. And so right now you can say, yeah, I'm a member, but I'm not in a small group. Okay, there's a, po there's a portion of your discipleship then that is lacking. It's missing. You're missing out on something, and people in the church family are missing out on your unique DNA being in that small group, walking together, sharing life together, the good and the bad. Equip. We worship this is worship services. You're being equipped. Your role is preaching. When I'm preaching and anybody's preaching to say, is that what the word of God says? Then how do I respond? Have I obeyed? How do I obey? Lord, help me in that. In small groups, that's where we're equipped. And then serve to engage in ministry. Is there a ministry where you're serving as a member in the body of Christ? So we're going somewhere because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what God is doing through you and me. And so we submit and, and we need something because otherwise we come and we say, that was a really nice message. That went, oh, Isaac Jr., that was a great message. And what are we doing about it? Oh, I don't know, but it was a really great message. There it is, okay? We've, we've put it on the bottom shelf. This is a discipleship pathway. Where are you in this, in this pathway? How can we encourage you and help you? And now you have the handles and the wherewithal that you can look around you and you can look to those and say, how can I encourage you on the discipleship pathway? I actually know where we should be going. How can I help you? How can I encourage you? Well, I actually haven't been saved yet. Let me help you. Let me talk with you. Let me pray with you. Oh, I'm scared to get baptized. Fear and water and people. Let me talk with you. Let me. You see, this is where we're all in this together. This is every member a minister, not a two-tier. It's the professionals and everybody else. No, that's not scriptural. So as we see in this passage today, we see leadership, Nehemiah chapter 2, and here's Nehemiah. The people have been under God's judgment, but the sun is beginning to come out. They're beginning to see God is at work again. The king gave him everything he asked for. Verse 8, the good hand of my God was upon me. And look how fast we get from in the foreign land, Persia, all the way back to Jerusalem, back to uh, the ancient Near East. Verse 9, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, uh, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that, I, that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But... When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants. We, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we want to see seven characteristics of a godly and fearless leader. Seven characteristics of a godly and fearless leader. Now, as we think about human history, there have been many amazing leaders. There's been evil, wicked leaders but there have been some that would stand out, a George Washington, an Abraham Lincoln, you know, a, a, a John Patton, Churchill, just one man making a difference. Uh, Stephen and I got to tour the Alamo and we were down a, a week ago down in San Antonio. Just a ragtag group of people who took a stand and, and changed the course of history for Texas the nation. But we're, this morning we're, we're keying into, we're zeroing into not just an effective human leader, but there's an extra term here, a godly leader. What do you put, what do you get when you have a godly leader who's fearless? What can God do through one person who fears God and therefore all other fear is driven out. They're not afraid of anyone or anything else because they rightly reverence and fear God. Let's unpack this together. Number one, he or she steps out of the comfort zone. That's what Nehemiah did. All of Nehemiah's prayers, all of his planning, it led him to the point of making a journey. 
and starting the work at Jerusalem. But he comes with letters. He comes with credentials. He's coming with authority now. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Don't you think, can you imagine that? Like here, read them and weep, boys. I'm on official business of the king. He comes with officers of the army. They come with horsemen. Oh, there's Sanballat and Tobiah. What are you doing? Coming to look, help these people? We hate these people. If we're going to step out of the comfort zone, then we must prioritize obedience. Obedience must be prioritized. Here we see one man on a mission for God. So do not, sometimes we can say this in our own thinking, what can I do? What difference would I make serving at the church? What difference? It doesn't really matter if I'm in a small group or not. It doesn't matter if I'm serving or not. I have to let the Holy Spirit work that through into your own thinking and reasoning. Here's one man. And he had to prioritize obedience because he was comfortable. He had everything he needed, power, position. It was all good in, in a foreign land. And he stepped out in obedience to what God had laid on his heart. And, and if you just notice, he just says, then I came. That's so different than how we tell stories. Do you know what I went through? Let me tell you about the trip. And we started off and then it was hot. Oh, it was so hot. And here we are 20 minutes later and he just zips from Persia to I, I arrived. Why? Because all of that other stuff is meaningless to the mission. How easily we can get caught off guard and miss the point of the mission. Nehemiah is a great example. He gets right to, the, right to the heart, right to the point. Now, there's going to be a map come up on the screen just, just to try to help give some perspective. Okay, these are, you can see the, the large layout, and then we're going to zoom in on the grid here in a second. This is, this is what's going on. So I'm going to look at it with you, okay, because I can't see that one. All right, so the route, we got the blue is when the first captivity happened and the Assyrian army came in and they took away captives, then they took them out. Then you have some of the Assyrian, they put exiles back into, back into uh, Israel. They mostly settled around Samaria. That's how you get the Samaritan people. They were, they were part Jews. They were a mixed race, okay? So Assyria took Israelites. Assyria sent back deplorables and they intermarried, and you have the Samaritans, okay? So, so there's a line going out, the green line coming back. Then you have the red line route from, of exiles from Canaan in the Babylonian captivity. So when Nebuchadnezzar comes, he takes more people out. So that's, that's the red line. Then the yellow is what we didn't study, but that's when Ezra comes, and there's the first return. And we're looking at this, uh, you know, orangish one um, toward the end under Ezra, um, and Nehemiah, okay? So now we go to the next screen. This is, this is where, look, some of you have these maps, all right? You can find these maps. I just want to give you a lay of the land. This is a huge journey. This is a massive undertaking. These are a people who were displaced, and so therefore, there are many, and you're watching the news right now, there's a lot of people that are saying, we can't leave Ukraine. We have grandparents. 
We have babies. We can't leave. We can't. So it is in Israel. And, and that's some of them, they couldn't leave. The Assyrians didn't want them. The Babylonians didn't want them. They said, give us the brightest, give us the best, give us the strongest, give us the smartest, everybody else, whatever. So when they went out, now we're looking at they're making their way back. And Babylon conquered Assyria, so now they're the reigning. And so you can see when they are moving back along the, the yellow line and the brown, now they're coming from these, and there's Susa way over here, and now you have Nehemiah making his way back. Just a little lay of the land, just a little overview. We must understand that obedience has to be a top priority and also that God's blessing is essential. We can't do anything if God's hand is not in it and on it and providing for it. God's blessing is essential. Nehemiah had to have God's blessing. The mission was endorsed, it was funded, and it was protected by the king. God's hand of providence was unmistakably at work for the good of his people. Now, in Ezra, in Ezra 8, Ezra refused to ask the king for help. I told the king that our God will protect us. So now he's given us all of the instruments for the tabernacle and for the temple. And, 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 and how am I going to now go back and say, oh, king, can I have a, maybe an armed guard? I told him God would protect us. So they fasted, they prayed, they distributed all the wealth, and they went on their journey, and they arrived safely. The Lord protected them. Now you have Nehemiah, and he's showing up, and he's put to good use the protection of the king. He's got horsemen. He's got captains. He's got army. You know, he, he's showing up with letters. He's good with that. He didn't turn him down and say, no, no, that's all right, king. I've got it. He said, thank you. Let's go. Well, how soon can we leave? The application for us, loved ones, is that both men were trusting the Lord. Both of these men needed the blessing of God. In church history, I want to introduce a couple to you. George Mueller. George Mueller was a man who lived 1805 to 1898. I've been thinking about trying to get my beard like that, but I'm not sure if I could pull that off. He, he built five large orphan houses, and he cared for 10,024 orphans in his life. When he started in 1834, there were accommodations for 3,600 orphans in all of England. And twice that many children under eight were in prison. One of the great effects of Mueller's ministry was to inspire so that 50 years after Mueller began his work, at least 100,000 orphans were being cared for in England alone. Just, just think about these numbers. One man started out, there was accommodations for 3,600 orphans, and 50 years later, 100,000 orphans at least were being cared for because of one man making people aware of a need and doing something about it. You can read that in Pearson's biography of George Mueller. This man read his Bible from cover to cover almost 200 times. He prayed in millions of dollars for the orphans. And here's what's unique about this guy. He refused to ever ask anybody for help. The only thing that George Mueller would do is pray. He took Psalm 8411 to heart. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He took this 
text and said, the Lord will not hold with, withhold anything from us that we need. We will pray. And sometimes they would sit down, if you read the biographies on this guy, they would sit down with the orphans with nothing on the table, and he would say, let's give thanks. Like, this is foolish. This is ridiculous. There's no food on the table. And they would all bow their heads. And outside, hey, my bread cart just broke down, and, and it's all going to spoil that was his life. He prayed in millions of dollars. He believed it's not enough to obtain means for the work of God, but that these means should be attained in God's way. To ask unbelievers wasn't going to happen for George Mueller. No way. This is God's work. So I will ask God and I will trust him to provide. He didn't take a salary in the last 68 years of his ministry. He trusted God to put it in people's hearts to send him exactly what he needed. He never took out a loan and he never went into debt and the orphans never went hungry. And we're like, wow, okay, let's do everything that way. Well, hang on, let me introduce somebody else to you. His name is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody lived about the same time, 1837 to 1899, a businessman led to Christ by a Sunday school teacher. Sunday school teacher saw this little scrappy kid, went invested into his life, led him to Christ, and this man, at the end of his life, there's Moody Bible Institute, there's churches planted, there's a network, Moody Bible Institute, my grandfather, was blessed through that ministry. Corey Fifield received his training at Moody Bible Institute. One person, a Sunday school teacher that cared about a little scrappy kid that nobody else cared about. Here we are, over 100 years later, and there's ministry happening around the world because one guy, well, he was different. He said it this way, I show my faith when I go to men and state to them the needs of the Lord's work, and I ask them to give to it. And, and he said, both of us are showing faith. I, that's how I show my faith. I'm actually having faith that God's going to move in your heart, obedience and generosity. So I'm going to ask you. I'm going to lay out the need, and I'm going to ask you to help. So which one is correct? Oh, it's a trick question. We're instructed from Scripture and this could be applied in a lot of different areas, loved ones. A lot of different areas in the church. Romans 14 and verse 4. And this is what Paul says to someone who says, my way is the right way. And those other people who call themselves Christians, it's the wrong way. And they're doing the wrong thing. And so I'm against them. And I'll talk about them. And I'll, I'll you know, oh, Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. Well, how? How was Moody upheld? How was Mueller upheld? How, how were these guys, and you could go on and on, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, how were these individuals upheld? For the Lord is able to what? Make him stand. If you caught it before it went off the screen. Okay, how did they stand? The Lord upheld them 
by his right hand. So we learn and then we apply, but we can apply humbly. All of God's servants are dependent on the Lord. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me, for without me you can do nothing. Well, not only is obedience to be a top priority, prioritized above all, we're desperate for God's blessing, but conflict must be expected. See, the mission here with Nehemiah caught the attention of Israel's enemies. And there's always antagonists. They've always been working against the sovereign plan of God. There's always been a hellish hatred for the seed of the woman since Genesis chapter 3. The chosen line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on down through King David, have always incur, incurred the hatred and animosity of people around them. Why? Because Satan hates God and his plan and his people. So here the enemies of God are identified, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, Sanballat would have been, in, in, in other documents, he was referred to as the governor of Samaria. So he's over that region of those who are mixed with Assyrian refugees brought back to Israel. And there's this mixture of people, and that's where Sanballat is from, and Tobiah is down uh, from a rival nation, the Ammonites, descendants of Lot's daughter. They hate God's people. We're going to see more of them in, in, in our study so let's just move on. Number one, a godly and fearless leader steps out of the comfort zone, and number two, takes time for rest. Takes time for rest. The record here, inspired by the Spirit of God, is important for all of us who are prone to get overly busy doing and doing and doing and doing and doing, and we forget the necessity of being and dwelling, and abiding, and resting. This is possibly about a two-month journey between verse 10 and 11. And he says, so uh, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Actually, the two-month would be from Persia back to this region. And he just simply says, so I went to Jerusalem, and one would expect, and I got busy. I got my hammer out and my shovel and my trowel and I started working and was just hoping that people would come along and join me. That's not what it says. It was there three days. So if we're gonna take time for rest, then, then what are we learning from Nehemiah here? First of all, leaders show up. Leaders show up. Nehemiah and the entire delegation, they arrived at the place of need. They arrived at Jerusalem, this holy city, you could depend on this guy. He told the king, there's a need, I'm gonna go. He shows up, he gets there. He doesn't forget, oh, I forgot. I, I said I would help you. Oh, I forgot, I was gonna be, I got a, I got a little sniffle, I, I couldn't make it, I'm so sorry. Leaders, show up. Can this be said of us? You say, well, well, I'm not a leader. If you are a follower of Christ, you are leading somebody. We are all leaders. 
We're all leading somewhere. The question is, where are we leading? Are we confident that anyone following us is going to have confidence when they stand before the Lord one day? This is a great opportunity to pivot then. This is a great opportunity for repentance. It's a great opportunity for us as the people of God to realize there are some changes that need to be made and today is a great day to make these changes. We're devoted to see all believers making disciples, who make disciples. And that's how churches will multiply. So earlier, we finished with reach, connect, equip, serve. Now, now what does it look like then? Okay, so if this is our discipleship pathway and someone arrives, how can I serve? Where am I needed? What can I do? What can I put my hand to? Where is the work? Then the next screen is going to help us understand what are we doing when we're talking about multiplying leaders? First of all, a leader like Nehemiah leads self. They're dependable. Leaders show up. They are living under the lordship, under the leadership of Christ. They're an active part of the local body of Christ. So the question that can be asked to every member, to every believer, are you leading self? Are you leading you well? Are you serving? Do you have a desire to serve? Do you want to serve? Therefore, there will come a time, there will be the way, where can I put my hand to the work? Well, when someone is leading self, then God begins to do a work and they, they begin to lead others. That person's influence begins to multiply and they have an investment in others and they're, they're moving on. They, they make a difference and it will come on the screen, leading others. That, that's the next progression. It's a natural outworking. I want to help other people engage in their discipleship. And from there, they move on to, there are people who, they begin to show great ability and concern, and they begin to lead leaders in the church. They're, they're looking over, and they're, they're seeing things, and this, is, this could be better, and we could encourage over here, and here's a need, and they've proven faithfulness, and, and the Lord begins to give great fruitfulness to their ministry. And from those type of individuals, the Lord will raise up those who will lead the church, the local church. And when that begins to multiply, then the church, be able, we're able to send out and we're able to plan others. Number four, they lead the local church. This is a leadership pathway. This isn't a volunteer. We just need more volunteers. We just need more people to fill a position. This is where we as a people of God understand God, the sovereign, provident God, is working through nobodies, you and me, to work out his sovereign plan to make a difference in the nations. This is no small thing. This is a big deal. So loved ones, leaders, you can count on them. They show up. Nehemiah arrived. He got there. He showed up. He was there. You could depend on him. But then here is almost this unusual leaders. They don't just show up, but they rest up. They rest up. Nehemiah wisely took time to rest. And that meant other people with him could rest. There's wisdom here. And we need to keep this in mind. This is why we meet as small groups not every week. 
first, second, third week of the month. Why? Because we are committed to, you need to take rest. There's other aspects of life and family to be addressed, and I need time with leaders to have with them. But there needs to be time for rest. So we keep this in mind. That's why we don't do every possible idea of anything that could ever be done. Hey, what about we could do, we could do, we could do. There's a lot of things. We, what is most important? What is most effective? What moves us forward in the mission? Nehemiah took time to rest. When every member serves as a minister of God, then much is accomplished. And you know what is avoided? Burnout. Do you know what happens when Every member doesn't serve in a church, and this isn't just to us. This is anywhere you go. The, the rule is 80% of the, uh, of the work is done by 20% of the people. I don't believe that to be true in this body of believers. But when every member serves, then there's rest and there's room for sickness and difficulty and trials because there are other members who are ready and prepared and they're ready to go. So leaders, rest up. Now, in our small group, there's a question that says, where, where do you need to grow? This is probably one of them for me. I can be prone to work and go and work. I, I, I love serving, but there has to be an appropriate time of rest. And do you realize for two weeks ago, for Stephen to open the word, do you realize what that, that enabled me to do? It enabled me to rest and be under the word. Then Isaac Jr. here last week, it enabled me to rest and be under the word because it doesn't matter the age of the person delivering the word. What matters is, are they in the word, speaking the word, and giving us what the word means so that I can apply it? And that provided rest. What are we doing? We're raising up leaders, and here's what I love. This church understands and embraces that. And I told Isaac that. You're going to come, and the people are going to be thrilled that you are growing up in ministry, and they will bless you. And you did last week. Gail, incredibly sacrificially to that young man and blessed that family. Got a message from his dad. Thank you for being family. That's what those four kids knew. They sat at the lunch table. We know what it is to go into a church, who, the churches that know us and pray for us. They know us by name. And that's grace. Isn't that incredible? I, I just want to pass that blessing right back to you. That's what our guys at the end of the service are keeping before us week by week by week. We are partnered with these people. We love them. And we are family. We're part of this family around the world. Number three, the godly and fearless leader raises up other leaders. There's a plurality here. Verse 12, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. This was a, this was a, you know, this is, this is recon. This is night vision. This is going out, you know, under cover of darkness. He's got a plan. But he's got to put this plan to work. He's got to test it out. So the leader leads in wisdom. There's wisdom here in what we see in Nehemiah. There's a strategy to his plan. He's taking steps forward wisely. There's a place for advisors and counselors but a leader who refuses to visit the place of need, 
That's a foolish leader. If a leader only takes the hearsay about the need and they won't go put their eyes on it and talk to the people that are in the middle of the crisis, that is not a wise and that is not a good leader. Nehemiah goes to the place of need and he's not sending out somebody else because I'm the governor and it's nighttime and it's dangerous and it's risky and there's enemies out there and there's, you know, rabid dogs out there. I'm not going out there. Do you know who I am? I've got an army with me. Oh, he put himself right in the middle of the risk and he went and put his eyes on the problem. He rested up, but he goes out while others are sleeping. Don't we see here the selflessness of Nehemiah? He's not self-centered. Some things cannot be gained by asking others for opinion. He needed to see it for himself. So he leads wisely. He leads in wisdom. And he also invests into a trustworthy few. Perhaps he could remember back to when, uh, just came through the reading, when Moses sent out the 12 and the 10 came back and said, oh, it's a great land, but giants are massive, Moses. We can't do it. Joshua and Caleb, excuse me, hello. They don't have our God. We must go in and conquer the land. Let's stone those guys. But they, they were right, and they ended up being the only two in their families that went in. The leader invests into a trustworthy few. Nehemiah took a small group of trusted leaders with him. These had to be leaders that could be patient in the process. It's foolish to broadcast all of your tactics out to everybody, including the enemy. All right, we're going to be going out to take a survey trip. Anybody who wants to come, go ahead. We're going to be going out at midnight tonight. Ching, ching, lanterns, light, animals, kids. This is great. This is a wise leader. He's investing into a trustworthy few. Wise leadership considers the need, weighs out the options, and then leads forward in a humble and steady manner. Where do we see this done in the Bible? Uh, that would be Jesus. He invested into 12, primarily into three, Peter, James, and John. How'd that go? He walked away from the crowds, thousands. What would be our tendency? Well, there's this group here, and then there's 5,000 people over there. Well, I think that that is a need. Jesus said, come on, guys, go with me. Hop in the boat, go to the other side. I'll meet you over there. I'm going to go up and pray with my father. I need time to rest and be alone with God. That's the source for power and ministry. I praise God for the plurality of leadership in this church. I'm thankful for the men that God has brought alongside Russ and Jay, and there's other men too, and women, serving, loving, caring for. And it's not just caring for the sheep, but it's also the shepherds receiving care. That every single person, every member of the body of Christ should be well cared for, not at the expense of someone else. And also we see the leader is patient in the process. He's patient in the process. Nehemiah doesn't get out in front of God's plan and he's not dragging behind. 
He's in step with the master. God has placed the burden on his heart, and he's going, he's checking it out. He's seeing he's got a small group with him. So the leader who is serving God can rest in God's timing, can rest in God's sovereignty, and rest in God's providence over his work. God is in control, and he works out his will through human beings. Nehemiah, small group of people with him. Number four, the godly and fearless leader finds solutions for the problem. We see this in verses 13 to 16. They deal with needs wisely. He just gives the record. I went out by night. What's he doing? He's examining the problem. He's he's looking at this problem. He goes out by night. He's got to see it for himself. What's the need here? Where is the need the greatest? As leaders of the church, loved ones, we're looking at the need here, and we're looking at the need globally. We, We must examine the problem. That's what he does for himself. And then he has to evaluate the problem. Okay, so now he's been... He's seen the problem. Now he knows. He's aware of the problem. He's looked at it for himself. Now he's got to consider it. Now he's got to evaluate it. It's not just enough to know about the problem. A godly and fearless leader considers the problem. How did we get in this problem? What is the solution that is best for the problem? Let's just not throw suggestions at it or let's just throw money at it. That'll fix it. No, it won't. What's the root of the problem? If you need a root canal, a different toothpaste isn't going to solve the problem. Leader, leaders must examine and then evaluate the problem. And so he goes out and he lists out all these gates. It'll come up on the screen, just a zoom in of the gates of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. And so down kind of out here at the, at the left of the screen is where he started and he makes his way around these gates and he ends up back along the edge and then he can't get his beast through the, you know, through the things. So he has to walk some of it and come back in and he circles around the whole city, the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate. Uh, you want to hold your breath when you go by there, right? And then he goes down to the fountain gate and the king's pool. So now he's coming up that backside where the palace is and the temple Goes along uh, by the valley, inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley. He's done. He's gone out. He's done his surveillance. Now he's thinking about it. Then the leader must help eliminate the problem. Okay, I've examined the problem. I've thought about the problem. I've evaluated the problem. Now what are we going to do about the problem? We need to eliminate the problem. We need to solve the problem. That'll come up on the screen. How do we take care of it? He needed the time to seek the Lord and develop the plan for action. But his developed plan was about to be unveiled for all of God's people and all of God's enemies to see. This is a good leader. He just doesn't sit there and, oh, it's a really bad problem. Oh, it's a bad problem. It's a bad problem. He doesn't just start trying something all by himself. Understand how this progression goes. I need to go look at this problem for myself. I'm in this position for a reason. Who put you there? God did. So I'm going to answer to him for how I steward this position. I'm thinking about the problem. I've got a small group. And now patiently, here's the plan to address the problem 
Now it's time to bring it to the people. Doesn't that sound like what a parent would do? You don't just lay it all out for, you know, all the little kids. Like, oh, we got a problem, you know, a little short on money this month, you know. Hey, uh, here, here's your pacifier. Uh, you know, no, you don't do that. You, you, you work through it. And then you might have to have a conversation that says, actually, we're going to be canceling cable. Actually, we're going to be changing this. Actually, we're not going to be eating out as much as we used to. They already took care of the playland, so that helps you, all right? Don't have to worry about that anymore. But then you begin to deliver the, here's what we're going to do. Here's our response. And I love number five. A godly and fearless leader inspires others to serve. You see, this person, they help people join in the work of God. They don't shame people into working for God. They don't guilt people into working for God. They've got to lay it out there. Here's the need. Here's the cause. Here's what's going on. Here's my life invested into it. And it's all submitted to the sovereignty of God. But there's something about a leader like Nehemiah that you don't want to miss out on what God is doing. They help people join in the work of God. Isn't that what discipleship is anyway? Helping others follow Jesus. The most simple definition you can come up with is I follow Jesus, now what am I supposed to do? Help somebody else follow Jesus through the local church. They inspire others to serve. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. What's he doing? He's clarifying the problem. He just tells the truth. Clarify the problem. What is the problem? Just tell it plainly. And you don't have to be condescending and you don't have to speak down like we're all dumb. Tell us what the problem is. That's what Nehemiah did. Here's the reality. Y'all see this every day. You've been walking by it for years and you haven't done anything about it. And the Lord brought me here with that army and letters it's time to do something and stop kicking the can down to the next generation, hoping somebody somewhere one day will do something about serving your neighbor with the gospel, about ministering the gospel to the person you've worked with for years and they don't even know you're a Christian. Nehemiah speaks plainly. He's, he's not a politician, although he's, a, you know, he's an ambassador, he is a you know, a dignitary, he's not like a politician that is constantly, what are they saying? What did they say? They just spoke for an hour. I don't know what they said. It didn't make any sense. There's no plan there. There's a lot of words there, but there's no plan there. The Israelites knew the importance of Jerusalem. God placed his name and his everlasting covenant upon this city. He gave a promise, David, this is the city through which your descendant, and it doesn't look ready for a descendant of David that will be Messiah, 1 Kings eleven thirty six. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name, the city. And so what is Nehemiah doing? He's saying, hey, you remember this city is the city. Does it look like it's ready for Messiah to come through the gates? You can't even close the gates. They're still laying over there burned with fire. 
who is going to do something about it. And what do we want to do? I want to sit this way because there's more people back here, right? Uh, Somebody else? No, no, no. Here's the deal. He just lays it on the bottom shelf. It's not getting done, gang. Something needs to be done now. Then he asks for a personal commitment. He just draws the line in the sand. Paraphrase? Who's in? Who's done making excuses? Who's ready to make a difference with their life that thousands of years later in Richmond, they'll still be talking about what happens here, what God does through people? This means saying goodbye to all the all-out pursuit of comfort and safety. This demands a rejection of pursuing the passing pleasures of sin in exchange for investing our lives into the kingdom of God for the glory of Christ, the descendant of David that was crucified outside the gates of this city. It changes everything about a follower of Christ. Everything's changed. Wasn't that the message last Sunday? The cost of discipleship. How much will it cost us, Nehemiah? It may cost you everything. but it's eternally worthwhile. And they're looking at a guy that left the comforts of Persia. And he's not staying in the Jerusalem Hilton. He's making do like everybody else because there's a need. And he invites them. So there's people and he's asked of a commitment. Now, why would we buy in? Why would we engage? Well, this is what a leader does. Let me tell you about God's faithfulness. And here, Nehemiah begins to testify of the goodness and the provision of God. Ultimately, if people are going to buy into the work of God, do you know who makes that that change in the heart? God and that person. I surrender, Lord. How did you ever come to surrender? God worked that in you. It's his grace. So he gives a testimony. Let me tell you about God's hand on me for for good. Do you realize this work right here was begun in April of 1962? This building and the house next door, the parsonage, purchased for $12,500. 1962, we're coming up on 60 years of, you know what, at the end of the day, what it is? God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's grace. Many of the saints who invested into the work, they're already in heaven. There's something left behind for another generation that the work isn't completed yet. This is an opportunity. And so what is Nehemiah doing with the people? He's saying, let me tell you about God's faithfulness. Let me tell you what God has done. God has been faithful 
far beyond what we could ever imagine. That in a three-year campaign that led to us purchasing the five-year property of, during a season when we were the most attendance we've, we've had to my knowledge as, as a church in the history, and the commitment was $135,000 over three years, about 115, 10, 15 came in over three years, most attendance our church has ever had in its history. Did you look at your worship guide today? That in one year, God has given, entrusted, blessed this church. We have crossed the million dollars that has come in for a work. What is God wanting to do through this people? And we must understand something. It's not about a physical building that is the solution, the, the, the end game. It is not. If we have a people who say, God, I, I need your help to be like Nehemiah, then we're going to need a building to fit the people whose lives are met and brought back together because the people are devoted to the God who is the God of heaven. That's the difference. No praise to man. No plaques to honor. We serve the living God, and he's doing something not in your grandparents' lifetime, not in your parents' lifetime, in your lifetime, in the lifetime of your children right here, right now. What's my responsibility? To invite you, to urge you, don't miss out on investing your life into what God is doing at a most desperate time in the course of human history, right now while you're alive. And you have been placed here for such a time as this. And Nehemiah gives the evidence. He didn't have to say much and he didn't have to say it loud. I showed up. There's the king's letters. I showed up. There's the king's men. The king of Persia is listening to you? Yeah, and he paid for it all too. Here's his credit card. <laughs> Who's with me? Expect a response that is characterized by wonder, worship, and a willingness to work, loved ones. This is what Nehemiah has been waiting on. This is what he's been praying on. This is what he's been preparing. This is why he got on the beast and he made the two-month journey and he got there and he took the three days to rest. He gets out, he starts looking it over and he comes back and he says, now here's the plan. Here's the need. I'm gonna put it on the bottom shelf and, and God is doing something. He's been faithful. He's provided. Who's with me? And he expects a response that is filled with, oh, God is working. God did this. I'm not going to miss out. I'm going to get in on this. And what did they say? Let us rise up and build. All in, Nehemiah. Let's do it. Long before Nike. Hey, just do it. Let's go. Let's rise up and build. Count me in. You realize biblical ministry has always been team ministry. Not a one-man band. 
Saints are to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Did you catch that in there? He had to, he had to really think about this and pray about this. You know why? Because he wasn't going to do it himself. It couldn't be done by himself. He's like, I don't know. I got to think. I got to plan this all out because they're all going to be doing the work. If they don't do the work, it's not going to get done. Expect the response. And he did. What they said? Oh, let us rise up and build. Can I ask you a question? How have you responded so far? To God's moving, God's leading, God's working, and who are you helping to follow Jesus? How have you responded up until this point right here, and who are you helping to follow Jesus? It's not just their words. You see their actions. In verse 18, they strengthened their hands for the good work. They put their hands to the work. Like, well, if I'm going to be working, man, I, you know, I don't know if they started lifting weights or lifting bricks or rocks or whatever. They strengthened their hand for the good work. It takes devotion, dedication, sacrifice, and determination. The work of God is a spiritual work, and it's a physical work. They took courage for the work. They encouraged one another in the work. This is where the rubber meets the road. And sadly, this is where some people cut and run. Like, oh, man, they started getting close. Whew, got out of there. I'm going somewhere else. But when we see God highly lifted up, as Isaiah did, how do the people of God respond? Here am I. Send me. Take these hands. I know they're empty, but with you they can be used for beauty in your perfect plan. All I am, that's surrender is yours. That's what they said. Number six, stands firm in the face of resistance. Okay, so you come out of this moment. This is awesome. They're singing. You know, I don't know if they were singing that song or not. Take these. This is great. And here comes, here comes the, the buddies again, you know, Sam, Ballot, and Tobiah. Here they come. They are here in the whatever. Now it's on. They jeered at us despised us. What's this thing you're doing? You're rebelling against me. Be ready for conflict, loved ones. Be ready for conflict. That's amazing. The Lord has provided so much. Hey, be ready for conflict. Be ready for internal conflict. Be ready for external conflict. Be ready for temptation. Be ready. It's coming. Here they come. They jeered. They derided. They mocked. They scorned the people of God and the work of, oh, we're going to build a building. You, you like it when people do that to you? This changed Ginger's course of study when we were in Illinois and she was out jogging one day. She was in elementary education and a little kid on a bike about, I don't know, eight, nine years old comes, ride that bike, babe. She came in the door of the parsonage there, closed the door like, I can't do it. I'm like, what is this? I can't do what? I cannot be an elementary ed teacher. No. <laughs> ride that bike, babe. It changed. She's like, that's it. I'm going to, I'm changing it, doing something different. And she did off that one little kid. But it wasn't the work of God that was still unfolding. They despised the people of God. They disdained them. Now, one would expect this from the enemies of God, but often we're caught by surprise when it's the people of God that turn and it's called friendly fire. Now that hurts, and we're going to see that in Nehemiah. So listen, avoid isolation from God's people. If we're going to be ready for this conflict, then here's the, here's the secrets. Did you notice when we read this, the little word us 
and we. You see it there in verse 19? They jeered at us and despised us. What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They're attacking the group. What does that do to a group? It forges them together. It's a subtle but deadly temptation to isolate away. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Avoid isolation from God's people, loved one, loved ones. It's a deadly temptation. If anyone is watching online and you've been gone for the, for the months, even years now, this is a temptation that, well, what will people think if I come back now? They will say, welcome back. We love you and we've missed you. Am I, am I wrong here? Okay. Come on back. The water's fine. We're waiting on you. Let's go. There's a work to be done. Okay. Little side note. Don't say, where you been? When somebody, here's a visitor's card. Just hug them. Welcome them back. I'm preaching myself now. Okay. So just, all right. Don't be distracted by insults. What's this thing you're doing? Who you think you are? You can't do this. Isn't this like David and his brothers? Little guy, where's your sheep, David? You leave them at home. Think about the insults that you deal with in your own mind. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough to serve in that way. You, don't, you haven't been saved long enough. You haven't been a member long enough. You haven't, you, you haven't, look at you, the person you see in the mirror. You're no perfect example of, welcome to the club. That's why we're called grace. God's working on and in and through us, and he's not done yet. So don't be discouraged by lies, by slander. Are you rebelling against the king? Now they're resorting to just making stuff up. They're just, they're just bringing the lies. They're just lying about them. And what does Jesus say? John chapter 8, verse 44, about his enemies. You know who your father is? The devil. He's the father of lies and you're just like him. No wonder they wanted to kill him, right? So be ready for the lies. Be ready for the lies, but stand firm in the face of resistance. Stand firm in the face of resistance. Did I say that one already, number six? All right, number seven. This leader trusts the Lord with the results. The godly and fearless leader will lead with his eyes on Jesus, his eyes on the Lord. Then I replied to them in verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants. We will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So the leader who's godly and fearless, trusts the Lord. What does it look like to trust the Lord? Look to God. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Look to God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the God of heaven. There's no idols here. Look to God. And then what is Nehemiah doing? He's standing on the promises of God. He says, he alone will make us prosper. He's got a plan. We're going to stand on his promises. Look to God. Stand on his promises. And then he says, you know what? We're his. So rest in your relationship. 
Rest in your relationship to God. Rest in your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're his servants. We're in this together. We belong to him. You can't touch us unless he allows you to. We're his. Who owns you? Sanballat, Tobiah. And you know what? We will arise and build. It's time to get to work. Shovel ready right here. Let's go. Let's do it. The other day, Lola, we're pulling out of the office driveway. He's like, when are you, she says to me, when are you guys going to start building out there? I'm like, I'm getting my tools together right now. It's going to take a little more time though. Get to work. Stand your ground. He he gets to the end. He says, here's the deal. This work is going to be done, but you enemies of God, you have no portion. You have no right. We're not depending on you and we're not asking you for your permission. There's a clear distinction between the people of God and the enemies of God. So listen, loved ones, do not be fooled. Do not be confused. Because these yahoos are going to show up again saying, we'll help you. And Nehemiah's like, "Uh uh-uh. No. You're not here for the good of God's people. So let's look at these seven characteristics. They step out of the comfort zone. They take time to rest. They raise up other leaders, find solutions for the problem, inspires others others to serve, stands firm in the face of resistance, trusts in the Lord with the results. Now you look at this list and you say, huh, Nehemiah couldn't even follow through on this list the whole time. That's right. Do you know who completes this list? Don't miss this. Somebody just said it. Jesus. This is Jesus, the the righteous and faithful shepherd and leader who stepped out of the throne room of heaven to be born of a virgin and to live among the common people. No comfort zone there. It's Jesus who took time to rest to be with his father. It's Jesus who invested into those men to raise up leaders that would all lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. It's Jesus who understands, you know what our greatest need is? It's sin, and he is the solution to our sin problem. And it demanded him shedding his blood and offering his body on the cross for sinners. He is the solution to our problem. And on the night of his betrayal, what did he do? He took up the slave's robe, took off his garment, and he washed his disciples' feet. And he told his disciples, you see what I've done to you? This is my expectation for you to do for others. Serve. Serve. He stood firm in the face of resistance. He set, the Bible says in Luke, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. The disciples are behind him like, what is this? What just changed about him? He is on his way to die. And he didn't shrink back from it. And he didn't walk away from it. And he didn't make excuses. And he had all of them that he could have and said, they're not worth it. But he set his face, he went, he stood and looked Pilate face to face and said, you don't have any authority, but it doesn't come down from above. You can't take my life. I lay it down and I'll take it back up again. What did he do? In his dying hour on the cross, forgive them. And into your hand, I commit my spirit. I'm going to trust you with the outcome, Father. Now, here's the, here's the question. Do we see this in the leaders here of our church? Perfectly, no. But I want you to understand, this is the goal. 
This is the aim. This is what iron sharpening iron. This is why we gather as men. We, God, make us leaders like this, like Jesus. So a couple questions for us to apply and bring together in small group. Who is it that has inspired you to, to serve the Lord? How have they discipled you? How have they poured into your life? And that leads us to then, what is the risk that God is leading you to take in pursuing his goals? What's your next step in following Jesus? And what's your next step in helping someone else follow Jesus? That's where we want to answer with our lives. Let's rise up and build. Let's stand together. Father, thank you that you are patient. Thank you that you are always working out your will even when we can't see it. Thank you that you have been faithful and good to me, to us, to our church. We can trust you, Lord, and we do trust you, and we need to trust you more. So may we surrender all today, Lord. All to Jesus, I surrender. Lord, I give myself to you. Let that be the cry of our hearts. For if we have you, Lord, we have all that we need. I love you. I love these people, Lord. They're your people. You have been so good to us. Help us to build into the lives of others for your eternal purpose, for your eternal kingdom. And we trust you with the plans and we trust you with the problems and we trust you with all that's going on in our world, but we want to make a difference. So use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved. <laughs>